You are listening to ABS in Mind, a bi-weekly podcast bringing you the latest buzz from the asset-backed markets. Hi, thanks for tuning in to the sixth episode of ABS in Mind. I'm your host, Diana Satran. As always, we have a great mix of topics today, so let's get started. First, I will be chatting with Mike Lee, Portfolio Manager with Dynamic Credit, who will address some of the somewhat overlooked opportunities in the marketplace, or um, also known as online lending sector, and also will tell us a little about a brand new fund they're about to launch. Hi, Mike. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Next, we will have Maura Sidovi, a CMBS reporter and assistant editor with Deathwire ABS. Maura, what's on your mind today? I'm going to be talking about the high uh, retail, high level of retail bankruptcies this year and what that's meant for uh, commercial real estate investors. Great. Thank you. And finally, we have Al Yoon, an RMBS reporter and, and assistant editor with Deathwire ABS. Al, what's on your mind? Well, I'm going to talk about a big deal in the market last month, which is a new kind of credit risk transfer deal from Fannie Mae, uh, which uh, several years ago with Freddie Mac pioneered the uh, risk transfer um, bond sector with single family mortgages. Great. Thank you. Mike, back to you. Could we start with a brief uh, background on Dynamic and on your role at the company? Sure. So um, Dynamic Credit is an alternative fixed income manager. It was founded in 2003. Um, Our roots are in the asset-backed business, um, and that's really where also my career uh, has always uh, trended. So I always like to joke a lot that my career, as well as the company's path, has sort of mirrored that of the industry as a whole. So we started, so I started my career in, in CDOs and so slowly moved my way backwards to ABS, and now I'm just trying to buy loans. <laughs> um, but uh, we, we think that that's actually the right, uh, right strategy, because one thing, if we've learned anything, is that um, you know, overstructuring and overcomplication doesn't, uh, doesn't lead to better returns. <laughs> um, but yeah, so where we are now, so we are, um, our headquarters are in Amsterdam. Uh, we are an um, asset alternative fixed income manager and direct lender. We have about $10.5 billion uh, of commitments under, uh, under management. And um, yeah, we're about to launch uh, a new interesting fund that uh, we think uh, your listeners should be interested in learning about. Could you uh, actually maybe start uh, with that? What's the uh, fund about? Uh, when is the launch? Uh, what are some of the asset classes you'll be looking at? Sure. So um, it's we call it the diversified loan fund. Um, it's meant to invest in consumers and small business loans uh, or SME loans in Europe uh, throughout um, the US and, and Europe initially. Um, our plan is to launch um, in, in actually this quarter with uh, with initial seed investor, um, and yeah, it's really meant to uh, to to sort of one tap into um, the rise of online lenders, um, which have um, introduced a uh, ability for for asset managers like ourselves to do introduce some positive selection bias uh, into um, into loans uh, into into loan portfolios, but as well as also just to address um, the the underlying need of insurance companies for more whole loan exposures. And one of the things that we think about the asset class that's really interesting is that it's high yield, short duration. And uh, as long as you manage the credit risk properly, it's it's a it's a perfect complement to most uh, fixed income portfolios. Is there is there like a size estimate that you're aiming for with the initial launch? Sure. So um, our initial seed is going to be you know anticipated around we hope about 50 million. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is that uh, we have a large uh, installed uh, in- institutional investor base uh, in in Europe. So we have a already a couple of um, institutional insurance companies and pension funds that are that we have expressed some interest in, in, in the strategy. So we actually do expect it to be quite large, um, you know, in uh, 
in the short to medium term. And like you alluded to, um, marketplace lending, online lending sector has gotten so big uh, so quickly and definitely in the past couple of years there's been a lot of institu institutional folks coming into the space and kind of taking over the sector. Just wondering what are some of the opportunities that you see that are still out there for you know a brand new fund or within the, the platforms that maybe aren't so out there with institutional investors? Sure. So um, one of the first things that we'll note is that um, a lot of the platforms already talk directly to a lot of uh, our investor base. And one of the things that, that, that I think is a bit of a hurdle is the idea of um, how do you fundamentally manage the sort of misalignment of interest between uh, an investor who wants exposure to the asset class um, but doesn't really have the infrastructure or the capacity to, 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 to manage or, or, or surveil a portfolio of loans. Yeah, and in terms of the opportunities in, in the space, one of the things that we've noticed very strongly is that you know some of the larger platforms that are out there, um, investors have, have generally been you know, you know somewhat disappointed with returns because defaults have been a little higher than expected. Um, there's also constraint on, on capacity from, from the platform side. Um, and one of the things that we are sort of very interested in is launching a fund that basically taps into opportunities outside of sort of simply just the largest uh, platforms in the space. So, for example, um, uh, in, in Europe, uh, we're looking at a lot of sort of more niche platforms in, in other countries. So beyond just, for example, you know, France, UK, Germany, where the largest platforms are concentrated. And in the US, it's really about um, tapping into how do we source um, the right type of loans from the existing platform. Because obviously in, in the US, the distribution channels of the platforms is much more diverse. So there's more avenues to, to, to actually select loans from. So one thing that's really interesting to us, like for example, you know, one of the larger platforms that we've been talking to, has we've counted actually six different ways that you can buy loans <laughs> from them, right? Which again, allows for a lot of channels beyond just sort of a passive mandate to how do you, how do you find the right loans. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So we talked a lot about how do you find the right loans. Could you describe the process a little bit when it comes to dynamic? And I know we talked about positive selection bias somewhat, but sure. could you give us a very quick high-level overview of how that goes? Sure. So you know, the first thing that I always say is that it's a quantitative, but strategy, but qualitative measures always come first, right? In the sense that one of the things that you know we've learned from the, from myself and, and the companies learned through the financial crisis is that no matter what the numbers or the or the loan tape tells you, like fundamentally it needs to be sound underwriting, sort loan sourcing underneath uh, underneath all of it. So you know the first step is always going to be you know a deep sort of due diligence on the platform, and that's one of the problems that we actually try to solve for investors because there are literally hundreds of platforms out there. Like how is an individual investor supposed to? Go out and, and and do all that work. Whereas you know, and, and one of the things that we're trying to do is to leverage that in in sort of economies of scale, right? So we'll do it on behalf of uh, many investors at the same time. Uh, but the first step is always going to be: Do we think the the platform is institutionalized? And what I mean by that is really not just you know. Um, obviously, we'll look at things like how many years have they you know originated loans and in some sort of significant volume, but also sort of metrics like much like uh, equity investors look at them, right? You know, do they have some sort of competitive advantage in either loan sourcing or underwriting? Do they have the where they set up operationally to actually scale efficiently? Uh, so, for example, if they have manual underwriting, um, then obviously that's not really that scalable. Uh, at the same time, like, and obviously, I think of, of also great concern to a lot of investors in the space is, you know, do the platforms either are they either profitable or do they have enough runway to actually make it, you know, to the next funding round? Um, and those are sort of things that we'll obviously go through throughout due diligence. But once you get through the qualitative portion, then the idea is then we can bring our quantitative strategies into play. Makes sense. And I think this is uh, one question that 
a lot of investors are, are always interested in. You described this strategy that you guys have in place. Can we put some numbers on it? So what are some of the return profiles you're seeing within that strategy that are different from the typical ones in the market? At, at a very broad level, so what we see is that, you know, I think for sort of a passive exposure to the segment, you're probably looking at, you know, a base case return of four or five percent, and we think that sort of stress cases are probably zero or maybe slightly uh, negative. Um, and one of the things our strategy is designed to do is, is to try to, one, introduce alpha. So, you know, in our sort of testing, we think that you can get to, um, you know, basically two plus percent uh, of alpha. But, you know, more importantly than that, I think it's to reduce the volatility of returns over time. Because uh, if you think about, you know, the, 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 the bar or the loan sort of quality, it ranges pretty, like, ranges the spectrum, right, from, you know, your super prime type of borrowers all the way to, to you know, just above um, sort of near prime-ish um, sort of borrowers. And the idea is that how do you sort within there to find the right sort of um, value? And just, you know, to give, to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the things that we're trying to do to get that alpha is really... Oh. I was just wondering, I mean, have you made your first investment in this fund? Yes. So we, so not in the fund, so we've been doing balance sheet investing on our, on our, on our own balance sheet for, um, for about uh, four or oh, five months. Oh, okay. So what will be the first investment, do you think? So it's actually going to be, um, I don't know if I'm supposed to say which platforms, but, uh, <laughs> but it's going to be in U.S. consumer, but, and it's really going to be um, real-time loan-level selection, right? So that'll probably give you a, an idea of who it might be. Uh, but the idea is that through API functionality, you would select loans in real-time, um, which loans that, uh, that you want to purchase. Okay, but you can't be more specific than that and, and at this point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think probably we'll be more, um, more, more free once the fund officially launches. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but some of the things that we think is quite interesting, that, and I think not just us, but a lot of investors should consider in, in sort of how do you determine what that alpha, how do you generate that sort of alpha is one, looking at loan tapes, right? Like, for example, like how do you compare platforms with each other, right? And obviously... 10 different platforms will give you 10 different loan tapes, right? And how do you normalize that and be, be able to do more like-for-like like comparisons? And secondly, how do you, in, in combine them, how do you actually leverage the power of all that additional data? Right? If you had all these loan tapes for sort of in Europe, like with the European data warehouse, right? Like if you had them all in the same format, you can actually make it much more usable. Um, secondly, you know, one of the things that we are very cognizant of is that, you know, as, as I mentioned before about the misalignment of interest, is one thing you should be careful, I think, about is you don't want to over-rely on the platform to assess credit quality. So if you're only looking at the loan grade assigned by the platform, um, it, and the platforms are pretty open about this themselves, uh, they have different underwriting models over time, right? So, um, you know, depending on which model you're looking at, you'll get different performance <laughs> for the same loan grade. Um, yeah, and, and sort of, you know, one of the other things that I really, really like is, you know, how do you enhance the data? So, for example, like in well, the analogy I always make is that for sort of mortgage bonds, like when you take a, a mortgage loan tape, like, you, like one of the basic things that you should do is take a look at, you know, indexing house prices, right? Like, um, and for example, like yeah, for, 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 for marketplace or consumer loans, you have a much, you know, more, you can create a much richer sort of data set by embedding sort of um, not just things like, um, uh, 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 house price data, regional house price data, but also things like you can use statistics from the Bureau of Labor statistics on, um, you know, what are unemployment rates in different regions, or which uh, which occupations are, are projected wage growth and, and sort of opportunity growth over time as well. So we think that you know there's a lot of opportunity to enhance the data that you also get from the platforms as well. Makes sense. And lastly, just if we could touch quickly on, um, you know, considering where we are in this cycle, how do you think the strategy or the sector actually is uh, going to perform um, if we have a potential downturn in the near term? 
Um, sure. So, you know, one of the things that, that obviously that's, that's a question we get a lot. And, you know, if I, if I knew the answer to that, you know, hundred <laughs> percent, then, uh, you know, I'd be a very rich guy already. But, um, but, you know, one of the things that we always, you know, there's a couple of things I would say to that, right. Which is that one is that, you know, w well, the fun we're trying to create is actually really supposed to be to create true diversity, right? So that just means not just across platforms and not just rely on the granularity of the asset class, but really across jurisdictions and asset classes and I think that you know one thing that we're trying to create that's a little bit different than other sort of funds out there is that it's really meant to be uh, diversified across those sort of metrics um, secondly is that you know um, even though marketplace lending is itself is a relatively new asset class you know at the heart of it it's the same bars that 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 sort of take out credit cards because 70 80 percent of of, of um, marketplace loans are for debt consolidation purposes and you know, consumer and small business lending is an asset class that's been around for hundreds of years. The only the the main sort of caveat that I put to that is that you need to ensure that the that the lender has the same sort of rigorous and 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 sort of consistent underwriting and uh, processes that uh, that you would expect from a bank. So, mm -hmm. um, and then you know, um, secondly, I would also say that um, yeah, like there's a lot of information out there that you can use to supplement what. Uh, in uh, your sort of stress case analyses, right? So, for example, you know the the, the St. Louis Fed has data about covering you know personal loans and and credit card default rates going back you know 35 years, covering you know three recessions. Um, you can also do things like take a look at sort of regional stresses, right? So, for example, you know there are localized sort of stress cases where unemployment does you've seen unemployment increase, you know, you know three, four, five percent, and you can see what the effect is of sort of directly on uh, marketplace uh, loans, <clears throat> so it may not. So obviously, it's a small sample set, but you get a you can get a better idea of what the relationship between uh, delta and unemployment rates are versus a delta in sort of non-performance rates of marketplace loans. And then obviously, you know, the most practical is always going to be, you know, we want to be, you know, we want to take a practical approach to investing in asset class. So uh, we want to go low and slow. Basically, we have our models in place that is calibrated to ten years of data. But obviously, the models are designed to get better once you go through the cycle. And one of the sort of most practical things that that we always say is that um, you want to be in the right asset class at the right time, right? And unfortunately, like uh, in our experience. Um, T launching a fund always takes twice as long as you probably expect it to. So you need to be uh, basically up and running before the opportunity arises, not try to react to it. Um, and then probably lastly is that the fund is designed to be uh, invest in primary and secondary. So, um, you know, the idea is that we'll start with sort of trusted and, and sort of longtime investors of ours. And then, you know, if, you know, predictions about you know a recessionary cycle or credit conditions does materialize we think that there's a much stronger case there to increase sort of fundraising at that point in time very interesting well thank you mike so much for all the insights we're going to go to mora now mora so as 2019 is turning out to be a really high retail bankruptcy year with you know some of the favorites like forever 21 what has that meant for mall, mall owners and uh, cmbs investors too um, Deanna, uh, well, it means uh, slightly different things for each of those uh, entities, uh, uh, groups, but um, essentially for both, what, the, what, what they do share is that um, uh, the goalpost keeps moving in terms of, 
you know, what their uh, what challenges they're facing. Um, we saw um, Toys R Us file for bankruptcy in 2017, um, Sears in 2018. Um, those are the big ones for those years, uh, and now Forever 21 um, uh, seems to have surprised uh, some folks in 2019. Seems like um, 2017 was a was a uh, saw more retail bankruptcies. 2018, we, other than Sears, we you know overall they um, ticked down a little, uh, though though the, the negative headlines continued. Um, now uh, the closures and uh, and uh, bankruptcies are up again in 2019. So um, in terms of uh, that's left, uh, how that's affected the uh, property owners is uh, mall owners are uh, once again uh, all along they've been trying to reposition their A properties and cull and sell their uh, B properties. Their um, um, and also trying to identify retailers that um, uh, that they think will survive, uh, and, and also identify a mix uh, in four malls that people will want to go to. Um, you know, the mall is changing, um, but as they do that, they they they're they're um, continually getting uh, new uh, dark uh, spaces back. So you know, as I said, that keeps moving the goalpost um, in terms of what they're grappling with. The CMBS investors are having to go back to their portfolios and uh, uh, figure out uh, what the fallout uh, is for the uh, dark spaces, uh, the stores closing, and um, whether or not um, you know that will affect their uh, bonds before you know w- whether or not they're, they're, they'll get paid back before uh, before default occurs. Um, so. Um, in the in the recent earnings season, uh, it was clear that the the Forever 21 uh, shutterings uh, surprised uh, some some of the folks um, on the uh, at the REITs at the mall REITs. Um, uh, P REIT uh, said that they had been negotiating with Forever 21 um, and had thought that the, the, they would somehow avoid bankruptcy. Uh, Taubman uh, was uh, struggling with um, you know trying to quantify the number of stores that would close, the numbers keep changing. Um, so um, it's really left people, you know, with, with a moving target trying trying to grapple with the, the detritus from the old retailers closing down and while, while at the same time trying to reposition their properties for the, what they think uh, future retail demand will be. We said they're trying to kind of reposition to the future demand of um, retail, right? I mean, uh, many of these mall owners. I mean, they have to be, but they're positive about the malls. Um, mm-hmm. They they just see it. Uh, in, they're uh, envisioning uh, more mixed use properties um, where people can uh, like uh, do everything. Uh, you know, like as if it were a small town. Like they want people to be sort of captive audiences, grabbing their coffee in the mall before they go to work in the mall, and then going out to the mall at a restaurant before they go home, perhaps in the mall, because they're also developing residential uh, uh, portions of, uh, or, or, or partnering with um, entities that are developing uh, residential um, portions of the mall so that people you know, can live there as well, or you know, live in the complex anyway. Maura, you're talking about people being these people being bullish on 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 their space, but uh, could you also maybe update us on uh, you know the sector out there or people out there who are uh, betting against these malls? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, there are um, uh, there are contrarian investors who are shorting uh, uh, the um, CMBX six um, um, indices, which are, are have a lot of exposure to these. Um, old, some of the older malls, not not all not all of the malls are obsolete in them, but um, you know has a good share of them. Um, but uh, strangely enough, um, even with all the um, increase in bankruptcies, the um, CMBX six uh, the, the the short bet has not worked out for uh, those investors uh, to date. The um, the pricing of the triple B minus and the double B tranches uh, have risen. They've risen um, to uh, about for the triple B minus seven point five five to a um, dollar um, price of a ninety one point five five year to date for the triple B minus and uh, uh, to they they are now at uh, a price of eighty four for the double B. Um, so that hasn't worked out uh, to date, um, and there are uh, in- investors, long investors, who don't think it, that that will work out, you know, in, in, at all, um, because they're they, they're saying that it's it's really not so black and white. Um, yes, uh, a good portion of uh, U.S. malls will uh, disappear in, in the next few years, but um, but many will be redeveloped. Um, that's. Uh, Alliance Bernstein put out a paper recently um, making that case. Uh, they're one of those long investors. Um, but um, so to date, that 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 uh, short uh, in those short investors have have not um, not done well. Um, that is it, fascinating. On the Simon call, uh, uh, David Simon, I believe, said contrarian investors. Oh, he. he he thinks there's a place for contrarian investors, people investing in the malls. He said, um, you know, they, they want to be the, the ones that win. Uh, I think that's in terms of, I believe there's sort of an idea of um, putting money, you know, the idea, not necessarily shorting the, the index, but um, trying to attract people that want to put money into these malls to redevelop them. That's another way to play the uh, contrarian, you know, long view that malls are here to stay. So interesting. And um, you spoke about Forever 21 a little bit, and I was wondering if there was any other retailer that's top of mind for uh, CMBS investors right now? Yeah. Um, well, Barney's uh, was in bankruptcy, um, and last week uh, it uh, it became clear it wasn't going to get reorganized, uh, that uh, liquidation was going to be at state. Um, um, that, so that wasn't necessarily a surprise, but people had held out hope that there might be a buyer out there, um, and uh, there wasn't. It was bought for, or what uh, some people have said, for scrap for um, for the for the brand, um, um, and uh, that was characterized at the as the end of an era. But um, in terms of what that signals for commercial real estate, uh, I, I, what I keep seeing is people saying there are corners of the market that are safe, such as um, high-end retail, uh, which uh, Barney's fits in. Um, and that's, uh, there, there are a lot of corners, there are fewer corners now that seem safe. That's what, that's what seems to me to continue the, the pattern that keeps playing out. Uh, it's not clear where, where you are safe in retail right now as a, as a, when you're looking for stores to fill your real estate. 
And where are we, and where are we New Yorkers going to buy clothes now with Forever 21 <laughs> and Barney's closed? Amazon.com. <laughs> the high and the low are gone, yeah. <laughs> Thank um, you, Mara. Well, I guess um, there, are, there are retailers that Untuck It is big. I don't know if anybody buys Untuck It shirts, but that's the, <laughs> the name on the lips of a lot of uh, re- mall owners. They, they seem excited about that. The, um, Untuck It shirts, uh, I guess, casual wear. Uh, will replace the expensive Barney suits. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, there are a lot of retailers that are up and coming that are online that are now trying to find brick and mortar. So that's that's the sort of how much uh, brick and mortar will those online retailers that, that maybe the new generation of consumers goes to, you know, how, how, much, how many stores do they need? Uh, few, definitely fewer than we have, but how many, I don't think anybody knows. Thanks, Mara, as always, for updating us on the retail apocalypse. Um, Al, we're off to you now. And the Fanny CRT deal, uh, it wasn't just uh, the first deal of its kind, which makes it somewhat interesting already, but it was also the talk of town for the frenzy that it caused in the market. Could you tell us a little more about it? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, from a couple of uh, uh, different points of view. Um, well, one, it's a, it was a first uh, deal of its kind. Fannie Mae has established this credit risk transfer market uh, uh, several years ago based on single-family mortgages. And uh, last year, uh, uh, one of the Fannie executives told me that they were considering uh, uh, developing this kind of uh, security for multifamily. Um, And Fannie Mae uh, owned uh, basically finances almost a quarter more than 20% of the multifamily market, so there's some potential for some huge volume there. Uh, not to mention that uh, the, the housing shortage in America, you know, there's a lot of uh, building going on in the multifamily space, and so that's thus the need for financing. Um, but, uh, you know, from a more a trader's perspective, this is very interesting because uh, um, the way this deal was put out there by uh, by the dealers, which included Credit Suisse, is uh, offering yields on the, uh, albeit subordinate pieces, up to 12%. And that's almost unheard of in this world where, you know, in Europe, I mean, rates are negative, right? And not to mention, well, well we should mention that uh, the performance on the multifamily loans that are financed by Fannie have uh, have had excellent performance in in recent years, and even actually through the through the financial crisis. So uh, investors are not too concerned about the credit risk there. Um, so why such high yields? Well, you know. Uh, some yield always has to be uh, offered when you're starting a new market, and these securities, uh, you know, won't be terribly liquid because there's just one of them out there, and it's an unrated private deal. Um, that said, um, it was a food fight for these bonds. I mean, I've heard uh, anything from thirty to forty times oversubscribed for certain tranches, which uh, basically equates to more than ten billion dollars of demand for a four hundred and seventy some million dollar deal. Um, and uh, but seeing all this demand, uh, Fannie and its uh, dealers, of course, uh, kept cutting yields on on the on the uh, uh, for the investors even before the deal closed. And uh, investors, uh, you know, tend to get a little perturbed when that happens. I mean, you know, once they can understand, but two, three times it happened. Um, but nevertheless. Investors still uh, stuck with the deal, and uh, they were rewarded for doing so because the deal kept tightening in the secondary market. Mm -hmm. It's really quite amazing. 
So what's uh, what's been happening on the secondary? Can you give us some, some more color? Well, um, you know, I was, saw, I was listening to one of the Reed conference calls, Reed earnings conference call yesterday. It was New York Mortgage Trust, and the executives there said that they had bought the deal, and uh, they talked about... Um, you know, it's going to take one or two more deals to really figure out where the yield should be. I mean, there's only one deal. You have a lot of, you know, investors interested because of the yield, and the yield will probably keep coming down because of the demand. But uh, how far, uh, nobody knows. And not to mention that you, of course, have macro forces that could throw a wrench in things at any moment. Um, but... Uh, uh, the the manager of this REIT, they basically said right now is a tr- good great trading opportunity. Um, and when something's volatile like this, spreads are all over the place. Then you know, of course, uh, um, there's potential to make a great deal of money off of that in the secondary. Interesting. And all these things you mentioned about kind of this agency paper be- becoming performing well in recent mm-hmm. years, etc. I think I've read somewhere that PIMCO just recently expressed interest in buying a lot of this paper. Are you seeing other investors also, kind of new investors coming into the space that traditionally, I guess, weren't really involved? In the multifamily sector, you mean, or just residential uh, you know, mortgages? Agency, uh, more. Oh, agency. Generally. Well, I mean, I think you might be referring to like agency CMBS that a lot of people are going into, which is like uh, basically, I mean, you know, I mentioned this new Fannie Mae financing of multifamily. Well, Freddie Mac has been doing this for years in a, in a way through its uh, what they call K deals. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a deal whereby um, they sell a guaranteed portion, but also um, a, a subordinate piece that is not guaranteed. Guaranteed, and uh, the private institutional investors that we write for oftentimes, you know, will buy these uh, the bottom pieces of these K deals because you know it is uh, taking risks. They do their credit work on the loans that are backing the deal, and, uh, and by the way, they're paid higher higher yields too. So um, that space, and uh, I've been discussing with Mora actually about this too. It's uh, sort of been a favorite of uh, of private investors. Um, yeah, I think it's another way to get more multifamily, uh, you know, get out of the private sector, go to the agency uh, deals. But, I mean, multifamily and industrial are the areas that um, the sectors that um, CMBS investors are, seem to be liking. Yeah, so that makes sense there. Yeah. Interesting. So does that mean that <clears throat> there's rumors of probably more deals in, in the pipeline? And um, Yes. Uh, um, I, I'd go Beyond saying there's rumors, it definitely it definitely is. I mean, I think Fannie Mae has suggested as such, and it's uh, uh, maybe in a thinly veiled way in their press release. But uh, <laughs> you know, for sure there will be. I mean, this investor, the New York Mortgage Mortgage Trust, the REIT, uh, certainly suggested that there is more deals to come. And uh, I mean, why? I mean, why wouldn't there be? I mean, if they get such incredible demand, uh, it'd be um, uh, probably not smart not to pursue this this type of. Uh, security for financing. You know, not to mention the regulator, or else I forgot to mention the Federal Housing Finance Agency. Uh, there was a representative speaking at a conference this week, and she basically suggested that, uh, I mean, you know, their Fannie Mae is, uh, has its blessing for pursuing this type of uh, credit risk sharing, which is, uh, you know, from their perspective, uh, it's good risk management and uh, uh, reduces uh, uh, the risk to the taxpayer. Well, that, that's actually probably the lines well with uh, sort of the eventual goal to 
make them a private entity again. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, in terms of GSE reform, we'll have to do another podcast on that or another <laughs> five hours of podcasts on that. I mean, you could talk about that ad infinitum. Um, and uh, I was <laughs> saying to somebody at the conference that uh, we stopped doing a lot of stories on GSE reform because it's a lot of talk. And I said, well, there's only so much, so many stories you can write on, on talk. Let's wait to see something happen. Makes sense. All right. Thank you so much, Al. Fascinating as always. And thank you, everyone else, uh, for um, joining today, for helping make this happen. Mike and Maura and Albert and our producer, Anthony Phillips. Thank you all so much, and I'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to ABS in Mind. If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Deadwire and follow us on social media. Please like, share, and comment, and join us for our next episode soon.